You're listening to The Bloodsucking Feminist, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, bangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Kelly. And you're listening to episode 23, I'm Afraid of American Vampires, or American Vampire, written by Scott Snyder, drawn by Raphael Albuquerque, and guest writing Stephen King. Jump right back into things. Uh, American Vampire is a currently 34 issues in its original series, and now in its second cycle, it's on to 11 issues, I think, according to Wikipedia. Uh, there's also various miniseries, one shots, and anthologies. It's about the next stage in vampiric evolution, the so called American Vampire which is much more powerful in multiple respects from its European um, ancestors and is sort of it's the American vampire throughout the modern history running from the Old West through the rise of Hollywood and to more modern times. That cover just about everything? Yeah, sounds about right. It is very um, rooted in a lot of of this kind of the immigrant story, particularly of the American dream, but in this case, there's vampires. The American nightmare. But them, oh, I don't think it's a nightmare for the vampires. They seem American like, horror story. Oh no, this is better than American <laughs> horror story. But the same kind of problems with women is American horror story, but. <laughs> so at some point, we're going to do American horror story hotel. Then. Oh, do we have to? Some people we like her in it. But it's Ryan Murphy. <laughs> yeah, but um Yes, so this is written by Scott Snyder, who's an Eisner Award winning comic book writer. If you're familiar with the name, it's probably because of his tenure on Batman. He is the guy responsible for the iteration of the Joker where he has sliced off his own face and is wearing it as a mask. So that may give you an idea of what you're in for here. He is definitely a fan of uh, violence. There's a lot of the, well, I'm depicting brutality, so I have to show brutality in all its forms. But that seems to usually take the form of, well, I got to be shit to women, right? Yeah, there's, there's the it, it opens with the classic brutalized, mostly naked woman shot that you see in a lot of stuff. And it's very rape revenge fantasy. Like this is very I spit on your grave or last house on the left. Yeah, there's no dealing with the trauma. There's no it's all very external dealing with the trauma. There's no thoughts on her emotions or the, her immediate thing is I'm going to kill them all. Help me kill them all, boyfriend guy. Well, guy who wants to be my boyfriend. Sure, he says. Let me get my gun. From. He's really quite casual yeah. about it. He's like, I'm a hobo. I've got a guitar. I I was in the Great War, so I saw some shit. Let's go kill us some vampires. Will you go out with me? I will say, I find a lot of the emotional beats in this story pretty faulty in that aspect. Like, I, I mean, it's probably a dumb criticism to have that, oh, nobody acts like a normal person in this story about vampires. But a lot of the motivations are very specifically rooted in quite broad genre tropes. 
So we mentioned there's the rape revenge fantasy. There's also the, you know, the sort of lone gunman of the Western, which is how we have Skinner Sweet, who is the American vampire himself. Uh, and there are, as, as we go further on into the series, we, we're talking about the first five issues in the main trade uh, paperback. But as they go on, they move into different decades. Uh, the concerns of each era are, are, you know, at the forefront, as are the changing genres. But with this, it's all rooted in probably the most masculine genre of fiction we have, which is Western. That's not to say that there aren't women-friendly Westerns, or at least Westerns with great female characters. You know, there's Johnny Guitar, there's True Grit. There's actually quite a few, but it's never really defined as a genre of uh, by or about women. Yeah, and sort of, again, sort of masculinization of history, ignoring the important role women played in the formation of actual towns and things like that in the West. Because before then, their arrival with, you know, the brothels meant for a place men could spend their money and the things followed the women, basically, with whatever decisions they were making because... Yeah, and and later on in the series, Skinner Sweet also becomes a pimp. <laughs> because, of course. But it's like all these symbols of like the vampire lawlessness, so, so many of them are rooted in this particularly strange kind of female exploitation. Well, not strange, but just very depressingly expected. And then when you have this element of the story of peril, which is the the wannabe starlet done wrong by the system who wreaks her revenge on them it is so rooted in the most sort of masculine ideas about strong women that I just find it all incredibly dull which is a shame because it's like a lot of the artwork here is very beautiful Raphael Albuquerque, great name, wonderful artist American vampire right there (laughs) but you know um, Pearl goes from hugely traumatized victim of a brutal attack to Rambo in like four pages yeah it's a very masculine idea of what a woman would go through if she'd been violated in some form you know the idea of the 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 helpless ingenue who's being taken advantage of on the couch casting couch except you know in this case raped and killed and turned into a vampire uh the, you know, the idea that she will rise above it and take on the system and take down the people who hurt her, when in reality, at best, she'd just remain silent. At worst, she'd be gone. Remember when, um, what's her name? The Rose McGowan, I was about, I was going to say Paige from um, Charmed, but remember she was talking about recently her experiences with a sexual harasser or a man who sexually assaulted her in the industry. And he's, you know, still won't name him, but everyone sort of made their guesses, and he's very powerful. Think about uh, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen. How long did it take them for to finally listen about Bill Cosby? Well, look at how they're still not listening about Casey Affleck. They just gave that fucker an Oscar. Exactly. And it's interesting that even in the 20s, this, is, this takes place in 1925, which is the rise of the the, the powerhouse of silent film in Hollywood, really the the golden age of the industry, when it's probably 
beginning to be, you know, a true powerhouse of a, an industry. Even then, Pearl and her friend Hattie, who are these aspiring starlets, are very aware of the fact that if they want to get ahead in their career, the smart thing to do is basically to lie back and just let them do what they want. Like, she goes to the party where Bloch, the uh, film director slash crusty European vampire, is, and she's pretty aware of the fact that she's probably going to have to, uh, for lack of a better term, put out. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's not fine, but it's something she's accepted. Yeah, she's using whatever she has to to get ahead. It's, uh, you know, it's part of the the implicit social contract if, of, the, of what she wants. You know, you give a little, you get a little, regardless of what that giving and getting is. And it's interesting that the vampire's reaction to that is basically to treat her as kind of pathetic. Like, they kind of go to her about it before they kill her. Which makes you wonder how many women have gone in there and had to do that. Exactly. You know, you you little human girl, you wanted something. You wanted something that was more than what you had. And then when she does become a vampire and she becomes basically, she is part of this new breed of vampire who is stronger, who is faster, who doesn't get bothered by sunlight in the way that the the old European aristocratic version of the vampires do, that is supposed to sort of flip the premise. I mean, that's another old trope, you know. You get your powers and you're more powerful to wreak your revenge. You, sometimes it's a weapon, sometimes it's, you know, the old Faustian pact. But here, my my problem with it, with it was she is instantly amazing and without even really having to think about it or work with it. Like, there's no moment of, well, okay, I've got all of these powers now. How do I control them? How do I work with it? She's just immediately like, nope, Rambo. And killing people and leaving them in places. and She's immediately really detailed and scheming in her plan. Yeah, she goes all kill Bill on them, but she doesn't have the bride's background. I don't mind a little bit of, you know, sort of fantastical elements like that in a vampire story. I mean, it's kind of the def- one of the defining markers of the genre. But ev- every time something would happen with Peril in the book, and then later on with her friend Hattie, which is a whole other can of worms, my main reaction was just kind of, yeah, a man wrote this. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of sighing with disappointment. So do you want to talk about Hattie? Yeah, I mean... This does technically pass the Bechdel-Wallace test. There's some really adorable moments between them early on. Uh, when we first see them talking about him, well, Pearl is talking about the first experience with film and she, you know she's trying to get Hattie to share how she got hooked, you know, what made you want to come out here. And then they're, they're on the scene. It's very, it's meant to be sort of a Ben-Hur film, isn't it? That they're working on. I think on. the implication is it may actually be Ben-Hur. Yeah, they're playing slave girls and they're supposed to scream in terror. And one's like, think of something scary. And the other one goes, the rent's due tomorrow. Cut to them screaming. That is, that is a cute little scene. And it was a great defining moment in their relationship. But then that's all spoiled by the end. Because women be backstabbing bitches, am I right? Yeah, never mind the fact that, you know, her friend... It was such, and it was such terrible. It was terribly, you know, foreshadowed, or not really. 
you know, she suddenly goes from friend traumatized seeing her best friend being killed. You know, when she sees her friend in the being taken to the, to the doctors, and it looks like she's going to die because of the blood inside her, she's like, "Take my blood! Take my blood! Take my blood, please!" She she's desperate to save her best friend, and then when she realizes what's going on, she suddenly turns to side with the vampires. And it's rooted in jealousy. That's all it is. It's simple, petty jealousy, or not no loyalty to her friend no real sense of companionship with this person who is implied is really the most important person in her life. It is just suddenly, well, I've always been jealous of you and now I'm just going to sell you out to a bunch of fucking vampires because I want to be famous. It comes out of nowhere. It is so poorly defined and it's supposed to be this big kicker of a moment, you know, this big defining moment of emotional trauma, maybe even more so than the vampire attack itself. And it's really kind of blasé, like it doesn't really seem to affect Pearl. She's kind of bitter, but she gets over it quickly because she kills Hattie and then goes off with the other human guy. Well, she, she shoves the star on the on the dressing room in her mouth. Doesn't actually kill her. Oh, it's really passive. Like, the, the, like he wouldn't get tried in the court of law for that, would he? Because the thing is, it could have been done better. Like, as we've discussed, Pearl immediately goes on a roaring rampage of revenge. And it becomes very clear that Hattie is collateral damage to that rampage of revenge. What if, you know, at the end of the of the trade, uh, Hattie is not, you know, taking Pearl out of jealousy, but she's she's been violated, attacked, transformed. She's confused and angry, and she's lashing out at the person she thought was supposed to be protecting her, but it was her actions that got her turned into this. She's not dealing with it she's just lashing out because this is the only feeling she's got at the moment she's angry and she doesn't know where to put it see that would have been interesting i feel like there's a lot of elements that scott snyder's really good at i think his world building here is really fascinating especially as the series goes on you know, we go. You know, there's the scenes in, with Skinner in Vegas in the 30s, which are really beautiful. You get to the 60s and the kind of convergence of the um, the hippie movement is really fascinating. And even here, like I like the idea of the the contrast between the Stephen King story, which is about the origins of Skinner's suite in the Old West, the kind of defining story of the American dream, versus the new generation of that, which is the flapper era pre-depression Hollywood. Like, I think that's fascinating. It's one of the big missteps. But, like, there's no good character we're going on here. Yeah. Like, it's clear that his fascination, like, the character he really cares about is Skinner, because he's the American vampire. Peril is a Amer- an American vampire, she's but she's not the, the American vampire. That is Skinner. So even though we do see her later on in the series... And she gets a sort of more defined motivation that's you know, more clear to to the reader. Yeah, she's the companion. It's still to the not doctor. her story, she's really. Our, she's the reader's eyes and ears into this new world. Which once again is an old trope. There, there's nothing wrong with that. I just I question the execution because I'm so bored of rape revenge yeah. stories. Um, like I'm also not saying that a man cannot write a good story from the point of view of a woman. I mean. Jesus Christ, Greg Rucker to look at other um, comics uh, writers. Oh yeah, there are plenty of good examples. <laughs> Obviously, we're going to hashtag not all men here, but 
It's just every time when it does happen, it's just kind of another notch on the post of, oh, yep, again. And that's a shame because there are really interesting ideas at heart here. Like, the whole idea of the American vampire is that there's this new breed of vampires born of America. They're still white folk. You're not Native American. They do come up later in the series, but not right now. The defining feature is this new American vampire born of the country, created of the country, who is stronger, faster, and better than the old, dying out, aristocratic vein, which is more like the the, the Nosferatu of the of the, the vampire that world. Literally refusing to evolve and update themselves, are being replaced by something better and new. Literally, the new world. New world. Yeah, they are taking over this new world, but they are sticking to their old means of doing it. They are really refusing to let go of the powers that they have, you know, built the entire power structure around. And it takes the, you know, the rogue renegade uh, cowboy to to right that wrong. Even though Skinner Sweet is a pretty despicable person, even before he becomes a vampire. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand... He's definitely an anti-hero. Want some candy, motherfucker? <laughs> oh god, that's such a Stephen King moment I know, as well. I, I do love that moment, because it's just like, bursting out of the coffin of the lake, and want some candy, motherfucker. And then he's like, still wandering off, looking for candy. Yeah, I mean, the story of Peril and Skinner are kind of mirrored in that way. They are both people who have been done wrong by the same group. The difference is that Skinner chooses to make Peril a vampire, whereas Skinner was not, that was not a choice that he got, and it was not a choice that the other vampires deliberately made. It was purely accidental. Just like evolution, it's, he was a random mutation, you know, a, a quirk. But then he passed on his superior genes, blah, blah, blah. Not believed in certain parts of America. And it's interesting how that um, superiority takes form. He, they t- are not allergic to sunlight. They are stronger and faster than the old breed of vampires. They are not allergic to silver, but they are allergic to gold. That is also kind of the perfect manifestation of the American dream, isn't it? What is the ultimate fetish that drove people all the way to California in particular was the promise of money, it was the promise of fame, it was the promise of for- good fortune. So in Skinner's world, that takes the form of the the old school kind of western tale of you know of thievery and the the gold rush and for peril it is through fame and fortune in hollywood one was searching for gold one was searching for a different kind of immortality it's inter- i wonder how we as two non-american readers feel reading american vampire versus what an american reader might think like we pick up a lot of the whole idea of the american is best you know, it's literally mentioned as the American vampire is a new, better breed. It's the Henry T. It's the new Ford of straight off the lot compared to the old European clunkers. America is new. It is better. It is innovation and change. We are going. It's, America is the future, and so is the American vampire. And we're just sitting here going, "Yeah, and look what you guys did last November." <laughs> so you're saying that Trump isn't a vampire? Well, he's certainly not allergic to gold. It'd be really funny if that was just gold paint, wouldn't it? 
somewhere somebody's listening to him it's like he knows they know his secret <laughs> i will say in terms of well of the american exceptionalism elements which are all the way through this thing it is interesting that skinner is defined as the american vampire you know the, the pioneering creation of his land uh he's still a white guy he is not a native american you know and in the, they do appear later in the series. There are Native American vampires, and I believe they do encounter Skinner. But as this is how the story is defined from the beginning, you know, the creation of America in its most refined form, the American exceptionalism that drives the story is white. It is manifest destiny undead. Yeah, it's the building on the European rather than actual American history up until that time. It's the it's the image of the American as the uh, straight, white, cisgender man. Because we've never seen that in fiction before. It's the whole, imagine the average American and it's this guy again. That asshole. It is, it, if you read the comics later on as well, there is a character of... Um... Mimeter, I believe it's pronounced, who was the the genuinely first American vampire who was a young Apache woman, but none of her exploits were were recorded by history, so they're kind of lost to the world. Which I guess is commentary on how ah, yes. Native Americans are treated, but it's also like, yeah, I see what you're doing, Scott Snyder. Yeah, commentary on Native American um, achievements and the achievements of women. It's a twofer. Um, but there's the thing, there's comes a point where you can attempt to make commentary or try and point out something but really you're just perpetuating it and that's sort of what happens there it's like every time you hear some white nationalist on youtube saying but it's satire no not how that works or but it's based on medieval england and there were no black people then there are freaking dragons in this <laughs> I will say as well is that on top of the oh well we can't have people of colour because period drama that's also the excuse you hear for well it would be historically accurate for women to be treated like shit you know who else was, was being treated like shit everybody else but that sounds like too much hard work I don't want to do research it's hard and that's annoying because clearly Snyder has done some research I mean, he clearly knows his uh, 1920s silent film history. He clearly knows his genre. He's clearly genre savvy. I think he's just fallen into that same blind spot that you see with the vast majority of male writers. Yeah. You know, it, it's not. It's that he didn't think, not that he made choices. Yeah, and I don't think there were any editors of Vertigo who were kind of pointing this out to him. As we know, the comics industry, like, is is notoriously male in a way that even other industries that are notoriously male are kind of like, oh, you know, whew. Yeah, while certain areas and sections are making progress, or at least making mainstream progress, there's always been a very strong female underground um, element to comics. I mean, we talk about Vampirella a bit, and her original, and her infamous costume design came from underground feminist comics. But... Comics as seen by the mainstream skews male, straight, white, and superhero. 
And that's the thing is even stuff that is created by women or is done through that explicitly feminist lens, it doesn't take much for, you know, a misogynist to co-opt that and completely twist it. I mean, Vampire Vampirella is a really good example of that. You know, most guys who kind yeah. of leer over her or draw her like, you know, a broken spined set of tits on a legs, um, probably aren't aware of her feminist underground roots. And they're probably the same ones who were grumbling that oh well why is our costume being changed now and it's like well because feminism is all about evolution and you gotta update these things why is Wonder Woman wearing pants I don't know have you seen art of ancient Amazons they're the ones wearing pants while the dudes are running around naked seriously that is one way to spot an Amazon in ancient Greek art not all the time but most of the time is they're wearing pants and they're fighting guys with dangly bits and you can see the dangly bits (laughs) Well, even the recent example, they just released the first images from the new Tomb Raider movie with Alicia Vikander as Lara Croft. And she's dressed like she is in the most recent video games, you know, tank top, practical trousers, very kind of, you know, typical young woman on an adventure story. And there was all these men online who were like, well, why are her tits not bigger now? Why is she not wearing the shorts? That's not Lara. And it's like, yes, it is. That's the new games, you fake geek boy. Honestly, do you really want to go adventuring without a really good bra if you were had big boobs? No. Otherwise, Lara Croft would be running around one arm over her chest the entire time. I think these men think that boobs are zero gravity, to be honest. Yeah, it's just that male perspective that doesn't see certain things that women see. You know, the, the secret language of growing up being perceived as female. Um, these the subtle language and social contracts of uh, smile, you know, don't talk back, uh, don't go out alone at night, don't go visiting strange men, things like that, and then also just the the in- other interactions between female characters that were passed by a lot of male writers. Same with these responses to certain actions and violence. Again. Every every person who goes through this, male or female or or gender queer or any other gender, they will they're individuals. They will have their own reaction. But they're that rising from the grave to kill all the men that violated you is very much uh, the male response from that, but from birth conditioning of anyone being perceived as male that the response to violence is violence. You know, if somebody hurts you, you hurt them back worse. The Somebody, you see it in the reaction of the when the when men find out that their sister, wife, girlfriend, female friend, or whatever has been sexually harassed or assaulted, they want to go out and punch the guy. That is the appropriate response in their conditioning, and that's the response that we see here in American Vampire. You know, the only response is to go all kill Bill, regardless of your personality before the violence. There is only one response, only one outfit, and it's violence back. Not even a pause to try and figure out how best to do it, or to make sure that your friends are okay, or that you are okay. It's find yourself a hobo and go kill them all. But how much of that is also just rooted in expectations of the genre? Because keep in mind, this comic book series started 2010, and by far the most prominent vampire story of that era is Twilight. 
you know, the book, all four of the books have come out by this point in time. The movies are in full swing. This is definitely full Twilight fever. So with that, you got this whole wave of critics. Not all men, like, let's be honest, we were probably part of this as well. Where it's just, that's not real vampires. Oh, vampires are so weak and dull now. And oh, I can't believe they've turned them into such weaklings. And oh, it's all about romance and all this stuff. And you did start to see stories that were more pushing back on that, that were trying to be, frankly, much more rooted in schlocky genre tropes and that kind of visceral violence. Well, I don't know about you, but it wasn't me because I got into vampires through the Vampire Diaries of Nightwear by L.J. Smith. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. It was th- there was a very masculine pushback, you know. Violence is the real vampire thing, you know. Well, that's also just rooted in the pushback to everything that's popular that's liked by girls. Yeah. Like, this is the hating of One Direction. This is the hating of, um, you know, YouTube stars. This is the hating of boy bands. It's the exact same pattern, except in this case, the, the girls dared to like something that was historically more rooted in a literary trend that is perceived as being male friendly even though most vampire fiction that reached the popular consciousness was loved you know was just beloved by women yeah they just sort of finally realized that actually the genre had turned them into romantic um romantic heroes a long time ago and of course being late to the party they had to make it all about themselves you know how dare they emasculate vampires they were all about taking control and biting the women and what else did vampires do? I don't know. I never read anything with vampires in it. And what the fuck are with these women in my Ghostbusters movie? Honestly, did they not read the comics where there were female Ghostbusters and had to go off and rescue the men? No, because that didn't destroy their childhoods. They're perfectly happy of destroying the childhoods of little girls watching My Little Pony. <laughs> Ooh, ouch. Ooh, or Sailor Moon as well. <laughs> Thanks, man. You've made it impossible for any 14-year-old girl to Google My Little Pony without safety blocks on. Yeah. Or worse, it's the younger girls than that. Ugh. Upsetting. Who ask their dads to Google My Little Pony? And the dad's like, what the? What is my gender doing to these ponies? <laughs> um... But it, I think that's one of the, that might be one of the driving forces behind why American Vampire does take the stance that it does. I'm not saying that Scott Snyder was reading Twilight and going, you know, fuck this, I got to deal with this myself. <laughs> but there is certainly like so much of what this story is rooted in is of the most cliched aspects of masculinity in fiction, and they attempt to balance that out by having it, you know, be, you know, the woman who gets the revenge. But it just doesn't really work. And of course, then there would be the appeal for the presumed straight male audience that is the presumed average comic book reader. Even if that wasn't the intention of the writers, that was still would have been part of the why it would have been picked up by a lot of um, male readers. Also, there's boobs in it. I'm severely disappointed at the lack of male nudity in this, by the way. <laughs> There's a whole there's a whole sequence where Skinner Sweet is running around with no clothes on and yet everything is perfectly angled to hide the dangly bits. 
yet Pearl is basically boobs everywhere. Now, nudity audience, if you can find it, has full frontal male nudity in it, as well as the female. And not just in the medical, the corpse is on the bed, on the table kind of thing. Like, post-love scene, everybody naked. And that's Vertigo as well, so you can't tell me that they couldn't put me Skinner Sweet in there. Not that I wanted to see it, but just, you know, fairness. Meanwhile, you know, there's that show about the brothel coming up that's going to have male nudity as well. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to watch it. Okay, rent done. <laughs> yeah, so since we touched upon the women in um, the, the A story, I think we should talk about the, um, the women in the B story. Abelina? That is a setup for something that ties into Skinner's story later in the series. Yeah, it's, yeah. So the main story, the A story, which is Scott Snyder's story, mostly following uh, Pearl and then her and her interactions with Skinner. The B story is written by Stephen King, who is, you know, the, the father of the very famous comic book and book writer, Joe Hill. I mean, I'm, I've heard Stephen King's written a few books. He, he's made a name for himself, yeah. He's made a name for himself. <laughs> it mostly follows the the in-universe defictionalization of a book about Skinner Sweet the Vampire. You with me? <laughs> so in the B story, the author of a book about a fictional version of, well, a supposedly fictional version of Skinner Sweet, from which Skinner Sweet, legendary um, West, out, Old West outlaw, actually was a vampire. Uh, he's getting old and he's decided it's time to come clean and tell the truth that it's not fiction after all. Skinner Sweet is actually a vampire. Critical reviews are mixed. People think they think it's a publicity stunt. Um, and that's the story that we see the, the truth of what really happened in the out in the desert. And it's mostly a bunch of dudes and a young hot chick who oh, yeah. is really gifted in the cleavage department. You notice the way she's drawn? Like, she's got really... Yeah. You're like, she's going to be a romantic interest, just and by like, the way. I she's... like Stephen King, you know. Um, but, oh my god, poor Abelina. Her basic defining feature is that she is young and hot, and she is totally in love with, essentially, a father figure. It's actually her godfather. Like, he's... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I won't blame Stephen King for the, the boobtacular art, because that is clearly um, Albuquerque. But um, she she exists to be the smurfette. She's a good shot. The men are like, no, we must protect her. And she's like, screw this. Where's my gun? Um, you know, she's that girl. And at the end, she's like, please sleep with me before you die, or before you make me kill you. Yeah, that was the deal. If you want me to kill you, <laughs> it's my fertile time. Oh, so awful. Actual quote. Because the, the big <laughs> is, Avelina is the mother of um, Felicia. Who's basically little baby girl blade. Yeah, she's the, um, she's one of the members of the Vassals of the Morning Star, who are the vampire hunting organization that you read about. You'll see more of them in later issues. They're really not defined much here at all. But she ends up, she's the super special, like, Buffy meets Blade because she has special abilities brought to her um, that she was born with because her dad was a vampire. So, classic Dumpier. And obviously she is born of um, Abelina and, oh, it is so creepy, you guys. It really is. 
Like, because he constantly refutes her of, you know, no, I am old enough to be your dad. I am your godfather. We're not doing this. And then he just can't resist and has to give in to his urges because she's so beautiful. Also, he really wants to die. (laughs) And then it's like, dun, dun, dun. There's a lot of revenge in this series. Because mother and daughter are now out for revenge. It's a lot, very male defense. There's a lot of fist shaking and revenge. Which I don't mind. I like a good old revenge story, but yeah. You know, dig two graves and all of that. Also, Skinner Sweet being racist towards Mexicans. So American exceptionalism is racism. Surprise! Plot twist! You were racist all along! No, I would have appreciated something a little less white, particularly if you're going to go the American exceptionalism route, which I know is a phrase we're using a lot, but the whole series is steeped in it, even later on, when it does get more inclusive. Um, well, it's a good phrase, but even when the series does, you know, get more inclusive as it goes on, it's you know still defined by Skinner and his story and his you know super specialness. Like, there's a lot of potential, but I think had it been written with a more aware eye, it could have been a lot more interesting. Like, you know, if the American Vampire had not been a uh, a white guy, like. We, we, you know, we have we feature later on the the true first American vampire, but imagine if the American vampire had been a the descendant of slaves or um, something other than a white guy, you know. But I think that's just very comic book world problem, isn't it? It's kind of getting better now, but even then, it's still rooted in making the easy choices writing what you know <laughs> it feels afterthoughty like as you said there's some great world building some great ideas but but had it been thought of in a more in a less generic or at least something a bit different it could have been uh, very interesting <sighs> that's it basically if a lot of things would have been more interesting had they not gone for the default point of view. I mean, I, I wouldn't dismiss everything that's in here. It is an interesting idea, and there's a lot going on here in terms of the world building that I find quite intriguing. I just found absolutely nothing in these characters that I really wanted to spend more time with, particularly the women, because they were such broad, you know, they were you know drawn with such broad strokes that I've seen so many times before. I'm really bored of rape revenge stories, you guys. I mean, I think we all are to some extent, or I at least hope we all are. I mean, give it a go. Give it a go if you can pick it up cheap. Like if you find it on, if it's on Comicsology going cheap, on one of their many many sales, give it a go. But oh yeah, that's that's what I was about to say. Our main suggestion would have been to really think about the less heard voices that could have been featured in this book or at least the considering more about the perspective of the less heard voices that were featured in this book so for example pearl may be our the character we follow in american vampire but she's clearly not the character we are supposed to be really following and fan fanning over fanboying because they don't think women are going to read this and how the reactions are or at least they've written a very 
standard male gazy sort of women, you know, the, the women with the male reactions. Not that, you know, all men would react like this or that no woman would react like this, but it's a very classically male response due to cultural hang-ups and training of individuals and genders. Like I said, there's some really interesting ideas and, if, and there's a lot of stuff for you to learn from of so how to consider things. Plus there's some really great art in there. I especially love the mirror effect that these vampires have. They, rather than being invisible or nothing happens to them in mirrors, they become all sort of, you know, like in a carnival. They're funhouse mirrors. So they're all distorted and wavy next to the humans. It's really, it, it's a neat visual trick that I quite like. Plus, this again, the art with the, um, the the claws and the animalism is quite neat. Okay, so uh, next month is our two-year anniversary. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So to celebrate our two-year anniversary, our two-year vampiriversary, we will be doing uh, True Blood, the first season, and the first book of the series that is based on Dead Until Dark. So unfortunately, there is no Dennis O'Hare and limited Alexander Skarsgård. And he's got that terrible wig. And he has the terrible wig. And he doesn't show up until episode four. But if you want to watch with us, you have to watch the whole thing. You can't just start at four. I'm sorry. <laughs> Slightly more male nudity than um, American Vampire, but not enough. <laughs> um, so if you want to get hold of us, we can be reached on our website, bloodsuckingfeminists.com, on email, fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminists.com. Yes, that's fangmail with a G. Not that anyone ever emails us on it. Um, we're also on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem. We're also on Facebook. So if you go- basically just Google bloodsuckingfeminists, you'll find us or a whole bunch of people complaining about awful how awful feminism is. Oh, well, tune in next time for lots and lots of discussion of Alexander Skarsgård. Woo!